Hey guys, this is the Real Life Monopoly Podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kenneth and Kerwin Donis. We are real estate investors, and the point of our podcast is to help you reach your financial goals, which will allow you to have time to focus on your true passion so that you can live not only a happier, but more fulfilled life. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, today on the show, we'll be having AJ Shepard out of Portland, Oregon. AJ started his own property management company and has had over 10 years worth of real estate experience. He's done some syndications and we're really fortunate to have him on the show today. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Thank you for tuning in with the Donis Brothers. This is your co-host Jeffrey Donis alongside my two brothers, Kerwin and Kenneth. Hey guys. Hey guys. We today have AJ Shepard out of Oregon and uh, we're looking forward to having him. Please uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, AJ. Hey guys. Uh, yeah, my name is AJ Shepard. I'm out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, we, my brother and I run Uptown Properties, Uptown Syndication. Uh, we also have uh, our own podcast, which is Westside Investors Network. Uh, it's for real estate professionals looking to get into real estate investment. And we, my brother and I also own a beer company and a brewery, uh, Uptown Beer Co. and Binary Brewing, um, along with our uh, property management company we do have a construction company that kind of services that so uh that's kind of a little bit about me um yeah awesome awesome aj do you mind telling the audience how you kind of got into real estate sure uh my dad has always been a big proponent of getting into real estate he did uh owner carried contracts kind of growing up so he has always really just been, you should buy a house. You're going to should make money in real estate and that sort of stuff. So I bought my first house in 2007. Uh, it was a large house. I think it was like 35, 3,600 square feet. I still own it today and, uh, ended up putting a like kitchen in the upstairs and renovated the entire downstairs. So essentially did a house hack, rented the bottom four bedrooms out to college students. Uh, and lived in the upstairs. I did that for like six or seven years. Uh, pretty much a year after that, <clears throat> bought a, another house that a guy had passed away and his wife was like stuck with this like brand. He had split the lot and it was a brand new house. Uh, the garage had, hadn't been finished. Floors hadn't been put in, no cabinets. It had been like painted and was just kind of ready to go. So I ended up picking that up for a really pretty good price and then finishing it off for about 30 or $40,000 and then refinanced it and then went in and just started. My brother moved to town at that point. I think it was like 2000, a little bit like 2008 uh, or so. And then we started buying properties and doing that sort of thing together. Um, next property was a small type house, three bedroom, one bath. And we uh, converted the utility room into a uh, split it in half and then turned it into a, another bathroom. So turned it into a three, two, same sort of thing, refinanced it, pulled our money out. And then we were kind of off to the races after that. Awesome. And you said that you uh, when you first got that first property, you rented out the bottom floor to college students Were you also yeah, bottom, a college student bottom at the time? two floors. Awesome. You said that you were living there as well when you were a college student at the time, or were you just um, living there and then kind of just having it as student housing as well? I, I had graduated from college by that okay. time and was working. Uh, I was working for a general mm -hmm. contractor, uh, like a heavy industrial contractor. So I worked on like gold mines, steel mines, paper mills, steel mills, uh, and tra I traveled a lot. I was probably out of the out of the 
my house like 10 or 11 months of the year. So it was really kind of like a home base for me. Um, and mostly the renters kind of like took care of it. So it was a, it was a pretty good deal. Um, it was, it wasn't until like 2011 that my brother and I really like started opening up our businesses, which was like the property management construction company. Um, those first like four years, I had a strong W2, which I was able to qualify for financing. Um, and then my brother really just kind of came in and helped manage the projects and, and manage the, the properties. That's really awesome to hear. Um, and you mentioned that you did have a W2 at the time and now um, you're a business owner. So I was just curious if you could maybe tell us a little bit about what inspired you to transition to the path of entrepreneurship and what about the W2 lifestyle made entrepreneurship more attractive to you? Yeah, I mean, having to work 40 to 60 hour weeks and travel all over the place was not super desirable. So uh, finding a way to work where I wanted to work and work when I wanted to work um, was really the, the impetus to start our own businesses. We, I had gotten so many mortgages to my name that I couldn't get anymore. And it was to the point where like, all right, we need to have some sort of income. So creating that business income, uh, you know, we, we struggled for the first couple of years, did some creative financing. We had some people work as credit partners. Um, but after that, we had two years of history and we were able to really start qualifying for loans again. Um, and we did, we found some owner carried contracts during that time. Um, which was, was helpful. I, I mean, the, the freedom that is allowed when you own your own business and are able to invest in real estate is, is absolutely incredible. I, I wouldn't go back for a second. So I know that you said that you had started your property management company in 2011. Why did you choose to go that way? Uh, was there like a need that you specifically saw that you, you kind of wanted to solve by creating that business? Or was it something that you just saw an opportunity? Or was it kind of both? I mean, honestly, it's kind of how we start a lot of our businesses. It's like, we're doing that work anyway. Like, I mean, we had, I don't know, 15 or 20 houses by that time. And it's like, well, this is like a full-time job. Is it that much more to manage a couple more houses? And then a couple more turned into like 10 or 20 more and then 50 or 60 more. And then, you know, and it's grown since then. We manage a little over 550 units today. And I think we added like a hundred units just last year. So, I mean, it, it definitely, like, it started out slow in what I'm looking back to compared, compared to now. But, I mean, at the time, it was like we were doubling the amount of units that we did every year, if not tripling. Um, and so that's, it's been fun to scale it and been fun to, you know, hire on more employees. I think I've, I've hired more employees in the last three years than I, we did any time before that. So... <laughs> While you were scaling your property management company, were you also simultaneously building your portfolio? We have always strived to own more property. Um, I think we own about a quarter of our portfolio. And we over the time, we just keep buying properties. I mean, honestly, the management business is good for income, good for financing, but it's not something that we really like are passionate about. We're really passionate about investing in real estate. You mentioned that you did learn creative finance, or um, you at least would, you know, used it to build your portfolio. If you don't mind me asking, where did you guys learn how to do that? Because uh, we learned it through a mentorship, but a lot of times a lot of investors aren't familiar with how to structure those kind of complex deals. So yeah, if you could just maybe enlighten us on that. Uh, I mean, creative financing is all about math, right? It's how, how can you structure the deal so that you get it so your payment works for you and it also works for the seller. 
Um, so, I mean, my dad was very bene, like, I guess influential in that. Like when he showed us his owner carried contracts, I mean, he did, it was called like a, a rent to own and it was a great deal for the next guy because these people that would come to him for these rent to owns, he would buy a property, rent it out for four or five years, get it to a point where either he had to like fix it up or he would do this rent to own contract. So then the next person would come in and typically they were people that couldn't qualify for loans. Um, you know, and, and that's just the way it is. Like they, some of them paid them all in cash. Some like, you know, I, whatever their situation was, they had bad credit or whatnot, but he would give them a chance and it was their only chance to own a property. But I mean, in doing that, like he would have, he would raise the sales price and he would have uh, an interest rate that was favorable to them. But the first like two years, he would have a lease where a portion of that lease went to a down payment. So I learned a lot of that kind of contracts through him and like how you can, you can change the interest rate. You can change the sales amount. Uh, you can change like the balloon, but I mean, there's all these different options when you're selling or buying a place that you can manipulate so that it works out and most likely to your advantage. But you know, anytime someone's selling a place, they really like have something in mind. Uh, for instance, like last year we bought a, a three unit, um, it was right next, literally next door to another three unit that I'm still working on. But the owner, like he really just wanted this sales price. Like he, he bought it for 940,000 and he really wanted to sell it for a million, million fifty. And I was like, well, it's not worth that a million fifty, but what can I do to make that property be something that, I mean, I wanted it because I, now I can get commercial financing on both of them right next to each other. So what we did was is we structured it as a balloon payment. I got them a million fifty, but we're only paying four percent interest and interest only for a, the period of one year, and then it's five five percent interest the second year, and then the third year is like six percent interest. But I'm gonna have it refinanced by then. But I mean, on that payment, like the whole property rents out for like seventy five hundred dollars a month. I think the, the first month he had a rent back on it and he actually owed me money on his payment the first month just because of that 4% interest on, I think it was 850,000, we put 200 down. And it was, you know, and again, we put 200,000 down on it, which is less than a normal 25%. That's only, it's less than 20%. Um, so when you're, you're working these seller carried contracts or working with a seller directly, you're able to manipulate it so that it works out for you and having 850,000 at 4% interest and interest only is a sweet deal. Yeah, for sure. We actually were able to get two rentals this year, similar way, um, kind of just structuring the deal. Uh, pretty much what we would try to do is just go in at zero interest. Since we, uh, we started with little to no capital, we would also try to get it at zero down payment. So it was really something that we had to learn as we went, but just like anything, I feel like as you uh, make more mistakes and more mistakes, you kind of learn on the way. Like, kind of like what he was saying, we've structured some deals like that, but you kind of touched on something I want to expand on. You mentioned something about the benefits of going with that larger deal because you could qualify for commercial financing. Could you maybe explain what the benefits of getting more units are and why that is more attractive for you than, say, a, a single unit? Sure. I mean, uh, on like residential mortgages, you can only get 10 to your name. So once you have that 10, it's like, well, you, then you have to find someone else to partner with and you have to give up some equity and that sort of stuff. Uh, commercial financing, they 
really look at the deal and whether it will pass muster uh, just on like the, whether the property will stand by itself. And it doesn't really matter as much when you're trying to qualify for financing. Uh, granted, like they do look into you to make sure you have a track record and are able to manage it and you have enough assets that you could like, you don't necessarily have to guarantee it, but most of the loans are non-recourse, but they do want to know that someone that's running it and managing it is someone of, of high quality or has experience. Um, so what will happen is, is I, I purchased the, the one property uh, originally and we're it was a duplex and I'm converting it to a three unit, which is a whole bunch of development stuff. It's been kind of a pain. And then now that it'll be six units and it's going to be over uh, a certain threshold, which I think the thresholds like the loan amount needs to be about a million. Um, and once it's over that, then financing gets a lot easier. And then that'll actually come off my name and allow me to go buy maybe another three unit or a four unit or maybe a nice house. We'll see. Our mentors have told us going with you know bigger, is better because you are able to manage everything under one roof or around the same central location. So it's just less spread out. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, our company buys strictly in Southwest Portland. Um, we, we do syndications too. Um, we're actually under contract right now for a 21 unit. We raised a million dollars for it. And I think like a week, a week and a half. So, uh, we always buy like just in Southwest Portland, west of the river, um, probably within like, you know, a 15 mile radius uh, and keeping it all centrally located makes it easy for our management company to manage. Um, and if you guys are going out to different cities, like using the economies of scale and getting an on-site manager. So once you hit that like 55 to 60 unit threshold, you have that on-site manager, a full-time employee that's there, makes it a ton easier. Um, our model is just a little bit different. Like we actually specialize in that under 50 range because we know that we're, our management company is super close and we're able to effectively manage that. Um, we also utilize a lot of offsite professionals. Uh, so I think we've got about eight or nine girls in the Philippines that work for us full time. Um, and they do everything from like write leases to do my construction invoices and do books for us. Like there's a, there's a ton of stuff that they do and they're absolutely great. Thank you. I appreciate that response. And uh, earlier you, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit. Earlier you mentioned non-recourse loans. Um, for people maybe who are listening who might not be familiar with what that is, could you explain what a non-recourse loan is and how that compares to a recourse loan? Sure. I mean, in the in the event of something really detrimental or, or awful, uh, the, the bank, uh, say like there's a rent strike and there's an eviction moratorium that gets passed and like over the course of, I don't know, a couple of years, like nobody makes any payments or something and it has to go into default. Um, a recourse loan, someone who signs on it as a guarantor is going to be responsible for that debt and everything uh, along with it. A non-recourse loan indicates that only the property's proceeds can pay that loan. And it's typically a separate LLC that um, nobody there's no guarantors on it. So it can't come back to me personally or anyone else that invests personally as well. So typically when we're doing syndications, we have multiple investors that own a small percentage of the company. Um, and the non-recourse loan makes sure that they're, they're not responsible for anything other than what their initial investment into the property is. Awesome. So going into syndication, I know you'd said that you guys try to focus on part of 
buildings that are less than 50 units. Do you mind me asking how you got into syndication and how your first deal went? Sure. Yeah, we, uh, we had started buying, you know, multiple units ourselves, doing fourplexes, doing uh, 10 units. And what we came to realize is if we were buying it ourselves and doing an eight unit, the project took six to nine months. I mean, usually we'd, we'd take 30 to 60 days to purchase it and then another 60 to 90, maybe 100, 100 days to do the renovations and then another 90 days to do the refinance. Like you start adding that up, it just takes a lot of time. Um, and that was taking up a lot of our capital. Uh, so with syndication, we, we looked at it and we're like, oh man, we only need to invest maybe 50, couple hundred thousand dollars of our, our equity into the deal. And we can then do that deal and then start another one within a couple months because we can spread out our equity amongst all these syndication deals and take on an investor's money. And we can really do them like once a quarter or once every two months. So we can increase the frequency at which we do deals uh, as long as we can find them. Um, our struggle at this point has been finding deals. Uh, so yeah, I think back in 2019, we set like a yearly goal to do one syndication and um, one of the, the best pieces of advice that I was given and have uh, give out is like mock up a deal if you're trying to get into it. Like really just go through all the motions, create all the paperwork, like pretend that you're going to do it, whether it's one of your own properties or a property that you know very well. Um, just having that kind of information to give investors and uh also once it comes time and you're in contract like you've got a finite amount of time that you have to come up with stuff if you've already got these templates done and your operating agreement done and like all this stuff already developed it's way easier to edit it and then you can focus your time on talking with investors or focus your time on the repair addendum or all the other stuff that comes up that's unique to the deal 2019 we were set out a goal to do that and it took us about a year up to get one under contract. Finally, we got it under contract in, I think, September. And it was it was a beast uh, of a project. It was nine units, and I think we bought it for $1.25 million. The, the, the first bank that we went with, they said, it's just not in good enough shape, uh, no can do. Um, and then we went for agency debt on it, and this is our first one, not really knowing exactly what's going on. The agency debt came back and said, well, that's uh, that's that's going to need three hundred thousand dollars in repairs, and you're going to need to do it before you, we get it uh, sold. And the seller was not willing to do that, especially when the first appraisal came back at one point six million. So the kind of the cat was out of the bag that it was like a super good deal. So we ended up having to go with hard money, um, and I don't I don't know what you guys look at for hard money, but we have access to some fairly good products. I think we were at eight percent and two points up front. Uh, which is some people will be like, well, that's not hard money. That's like a regular loan. Uh, so when you're in the business a long time and you have a good track record, people uh, tend to bet well, bet more on you. Um, so that just kind of helps out. Uh, so we we did that and we uh, did the project. We I think we ended up purchasing it like right at the beginning of 2020. So we had to extend and extend. Um, and then we ended up doing all the repair work. I think we put about 100, 110 into it. Uh, and then we ended up refinancing it back in August of 2020. And at that time, the appraisal came out to 1.8 million. So we were, we were, you know, for our syndication folks, we were 
bought it for 1.25, put about 100, 110, and then refinanced it. Um, at that time, it was still during COVID, so we have these COVID reserves. So we still have another six, 12 months of interest and principal payments that are going to be credited to us uh, probably this July or August. Um, for right now, those of you who don't know that most of the agency debts requiring 12 months of principal and interest payments being held as a reserve account in case something goes wrong. Awesome. So to kind of touch on what you said um, at the beginning there, you kind of touched on using OPM or, or other people's money. And of course, you can leverage it to buy more, although you are investing, I'm sure, with your own money, leveraging other people's money gets you more. Kind of touch on your first deal and your investors, how were you kind of able to help them financially in that scenario? Sure. So we're, we are all partners in it. And uh, I, I can't really say exactly what they're going to get, uh, but we, we have a target IRR on all of our deals. And this one, they should definitely get uh, above and beyond that. Um, and that's all laid out in like our private placement memorandum um, for that deal. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I can't really discuss like the particulars of that those numbers here but um you know at least to say like the overall numbers of the project like when you buy something at 1.25 million and then it appraises at 1.8 it's a 50 percent increase over six months so if you annualize that it's about a 100 percent increase just to give you some ideas um so that's kind of a i wouldn't say like a home run but i mean it's it's definitely really good uh, one of the things that happens, a lot of syndicators will probably sell that deal as soon as the value add's done. Our company will hold on to it as for as what we said we were going to, which kind of the, the IRR actually decreases a bit because you're not adding a ton of value over years two, three, four, and five, if that makes sense. Deal, did you guys do a 506B offering or a 506C? Yeah, it's a 506B offering. So anyone that wants to invest with us, they have to know who we are, have a, a relationship prior to investing, prior to that offering being available. And if you don't mind explaining uh, how that would compare to if you had done a 506C. Sure, it- 506C is uh, with the SEC allows for you to take uh, on as many investors as you want. I'm not sure the, the, the amount of limits. I think it, it might still be a $5 million limit. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but the difference between 506B and 506C is that with C, you can advertise and take as long as everyone's an accredited investor. Um, and you, every time someone's an accredited investor, you have to do some sort of due diligence to ensure that that's actually the case. And those qualifications, I believe, changed with 2021 as well, which says that if you're a real estate professional or if you are a financial professional or a VC person, then you're automatically qualified without the income requirements or the asset requirements. So Tim, can I go off of that? As an investor, if they were to approach you, if they were to ask you, what, what is a good thing they should look for in a property management company to let them know that it's something that's going to be the right fit? Sure. I mean, I, asking a property manager, like uh, how many leads uh, that need to come in before they sign a lease and how quickly they're able to sign a lease and then how often they're meeting to like check on the vacant property uh, just as a team, like review it. Um, our company reviews our vacant properties twice a week. Um, and we have statistics that 
uh, our web program, like Zillow, you, you have Zillow that you can advertise on, you have Craigslist, and then there's like 55 others too uh, that a lot of people maybe not maybe don't know about. Uh, but people find places to live all over the place. And like reviewing that, like I said, vacancy is the silent killer. If a place sits vacant for a month, like that's almost 10% that you're losing. Uh, and we deal in like single family homes and fourplexes. And when you have a single family home for rent and you're losing 10% a year, like that's a huge, on these smaller investors, that's a, that's a huge hit. So we, we really try to make sure that that leasing process is super dialed in and the lease renewal process and, and all those sort of stuff. So I would definitely drill, not drill, but ask your property manager, like, what their process is and how they ensure that they have the least amount of vacancy. So you said that you guys are direct to seller. I assume you have people under you that are kind of reaching out to those sellers and, and pretty much trying to find a deal. Pardon We're me. doing all of the above, okay. uh, developing relationships with brokers. And then also we've got lists and calling through trying to get sellers direct. Gotcha. And are you guys pretty much just working with a system that follows up with them? Um, we don't have like a CRM set up per se, but, uh, I, we, I do have a couple wholesalers that are like calling through lists and they have their own setup. I don't, I don't necessarily delve into the details, uh, for that stuff. We focused on building relations with brokers, but you mentioned that you like to go direct to seller, um, in your experience, which has worked better for you. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a real estate guy. If you can cut out the middleman, like that's going to be way better. Uh, you're going to get way more profitable deals that way. Uh, but again, like you got to look at who you're competing with. Like I'm in a market where I've been here 15 years. Um, I, I'm well established. So that may be, you know, if you're trying to break into the market, like I would definitely say like getting a hold of those brokers because uh, commercial brokers, I don't know if you guys have like researched the business or at all, but like you, it takes tens of years to get established. Um, and just to have those, you know, those contacts that you have, you start developing them when you're young. And then as you kind of move through the years and then you start to become a seller for those people after, I mean, most people hang on to properties seven to 15 years. So it's it takes it takes a while to to break into the business for sure um i actually i talked with uh another syndicator out of dallas and he said yeah i mean don't go to the brokers that are up there and older and have like all their contacts and everything like try to find that young guy that's wanting to get into the business as a broker and like align yourself with him and just be like hey as we grow you grow too so help us out we'll help you out like, I thought that was a great piece of advice. Like, find someone that's on your same level and just be like, hey, let's work together and, like, help each other grow. Um, because you want you want to be the, the, the first person that the broker calls, right? Like, and if a guy that's worked in the business 15, 20 years, like, he's got a Rolodex of people that he's going to call. You're going to be put to the end of the list. I'm not sure if you're the one that's actually, are you, since you are a broker, are you trying to just take all the deals for yourself or are you working with other syndicators that, you build relationships with and you'll send over deals to them as well. Um, we, we are not like actively for the syndication deals. We're talking like 10 plus units or so. Um, I don't have investors that are going to take on a deal like that by themselves. Uh, or I don't even know any other syndicators that are working inside of Portland that are doing 
like value add to multifamily. I do know of a couple that are doing development stuff. Uh, so I talk with them, but, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, actually there is one other syndicator here and he's one of our clients too, but, uh, you know, we, I don't know that there's a ton of competition. Uh, at least if there is, I don't know who they are. And you did mention that um, you had investors and you raised capital for those smaller multifamily deals. How did you approach those investors in order to raise the capital for those deals? Because I'm assuming you didn't put up the, the money up yourself. For the smaller multifamily deals? You said the 10 unit, for example? Um, yeah. Did you raise capital for that or did you bring all of the money for the equity investment yourself? So we started syndication in 2020. So I've done about three or okay. four deals where we've we raised investor money. But prior to that, yeah, we, we put up all of our own capital okay. awesome. for projects. But uh, 2018, we did a project on Garden View. It was eight units. And really like mocking up that deal as though we were going to offer it with syndication and having that like pitch deck, that marketing info. We had a webinar done. We had the PPM done. We had the LLC done. We had the subscription agreements done. We had all those forms and everything all filled out for that deal that we never did. We just owned ourselves. And having that information and that already developed, when an investor, we could go to an investor and say, hey, would you, you know, this is, this is something that we did or we were thinking about doing. If we had another something very similar to this and these very similar numbers, is that something that you might be interested in? You know, you give them a week to mull it over and then you follow up with them and be like, hey, did you have a chance to read through that? Like, uh, we're, we're looking at something and we may have a contract here in the next like month or so. Like, you know, is that something like too soon? Is that is that in a month? Would you be able to invest or, or would you be more likely like on the year horizon or like in a couple years or you're just not interested and I should stop calling? Um, for some of our listeners who might be interested in investing in real estate and the financial freedom that it might provide, but they don't have the time to learn about real estate, what might be a benefit of them uh, investing in a deal like the ones you guys did um, as, an, as a limited partner? Sure. I mean, as a limited partner, you've, you've got a set of people that have done this before. They have a proven track record. Like They know the ins and outs of real estate. In all honesty, like some of the commercial financing is the deals are better. Like There's more money in it because there's just less players and there's less people that can do it. So, uh, you know, investing alongside someone that's been there and done that is a huge advantage. Um, and you know, as a, as a limited partner, like you're not there actively managed when someone's toilet breaks, like you're not getting the call. Like, I mean, there's, there's plenty of advantages where you get to sit back and reap all the benefits of being in real estate, but you don't have all the management headaches. Yeah. That's, something that we try to reach out and let our investors know that it's kind of like one of the ways that we try to attract those investors. Um, I'm not sure how you pretty much found your investors on your first deal, but do you mind kind of going into how you found your first investors and what some of the uh, barriers that you had to overcome were? Um, yeah. I mean, our, our, the investors that we found first are definitely like within our personal network um, it definitely helps having a property management company. I mean, we've got two or 300 people that already invest in real estate. Um, for some of our first investors, they were either people that have already owned real estate or knew the benefits of it. So going after uh, targeting those type of people is, is very beneficial. Um, <clears throat> trying to teach people how the concepts of real estate work, uh, tax advantages and all that sort of stuff is is a little difficult that's a definitely a hurdle to get over 
Um, but most people, once they've, uh, you know, kind of understand the concepts of owning real estate and all the advantages that come with it are, are pretty apt to invest. So to end all of our podcasts, we like to go through an express round. It'll just be five quick questions. You can tailor it towards your personal business experience or real estate, whichever you prefer. You ready? I'm ready. Awesome. So first question is, do you have a morning routine? And if so, what is it? I don't have a morning routine. <laughs> I am not Hal, Hal Elrod, um, <laughs> but definitely just like grab breakfast and then head into the office most of the time. Do you have a, a daily habit that you would accredit your success to? Um, no, I, weekly, I, I typically write down a to-do list or like goals for the week. Um, and then I just usually have that kind of sitting right next, right next to me. Currently it's this long or whatnot. So, um, but yeah, uh, we do yearly goals, uh, and that's been really helpful in the last few years. Uh, definitely shoot higher than what you think you can get and then break it down. Um, and then like, what's the minimum next step? We ask our employees that a lot of times is what's the minimum next step to get this done. So do you have a favorite book and you can tailor this towards your personal life and one towards business if you'd like, or if you just have one overall favorite book? Um, I am actually going to be interviewing Joey Coleman on my podcast here in like a week or so. Uh, Never lose the customer again. Um, And it's uh, the customer experience in like the first hundred days. Uh, I thought it was super awesome. It was a book that like was very beneficial uh, to our business and just had a, a, a great experience with it. So I'm excited to have him on our podcast and talk with him about that and how he came up with the great ideas. I actually haven't heard of that one, so I'll definitely have to check it out. Third question is, uh, do you have a role model that you look up to, whether that's business or personal life? Uh, uh, No, I don't have anyone in specific. Um, I I mean, I guess I would just have to say my dad. Uh, Like, I was super impressed with how he, I mean, ever since I was born, he never really, like, went to a day job. Like, there was a couple times he had to, come back up to Oregon and fix a house or sometimes I had to come help fix a house with him. But, um, you know, for the most time he, he, he did what he wanted every day, which was pretty cool. I, I could say that a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to that. That's kind of why we joined the space. Uh, my fourth question is, do you have a favorite quote or a piece of advice that has helped you the most? A uh, piece of advice is, uh, grab something and then focus on it and finish it. Like really, uh, progress is, is kind of like my, my quote is like a lot of our meetings, we have like one, one word endings and progress is is 90% of mine. Um, but really just like having that focus and the ability to really tackle something, get it done and then like move on. So last question, what is the best place for someone that wants to get in touch with you to reach out? Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, my email is aj at uptownpm.com. Uh, and then definitely check out Westside Investors Network um, up all over that, uptownsyndication.com and then uptownpm.com. And if, you want, if you're in Portland, come have a beer at Uptown Beer Co. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, just in, you know, in case, um, where can people find your podcast? Like, where are you guys? Uh, it's west, westsideinvestorsnetwork.com. 
Okay. Um, and we're on we're on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, all all of that sort of stuff. Um, so it's just it's Westside Investors Network. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, we really do appreciate your time, AJ. That's all we had. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Life Monopoly podcast with the Donis Brothers. If you want to learn more about what we do, make sure to visit our website, www.donisinvestmentgroup.com. And if you aren't already, make sure to follow us on all platforms at Donis Ventures. Let's be great today. Have a good one.